I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We're located on the web at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. Thank you. I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Robb, co-author of Divided Allies, Strategic Cooperation Against the Communist Threat in the Asia-Pacific During the Early Cold War. Thank you for speaking with me. No, that's great. So tell me first, how did you get into studying and writing on this topic? Um, I suppose where the inspiration came from was two strands, which was, I was on holiday actually in Australia, and I visited the National War Memorial in Canberra, mm-hmm. and uh, so they, they had a mock-up of John Curtin, who's their Prime Minister during the Second World War, give this very inspirational speech, um, far more uh, far more eloquent than any of our currently elected leaders, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they found it quite interesting, like, oh look, Australia has its story of the Second World War and the Cold War, mm-hmm. um, and I suppose as a historian mostly focused on the United States and Great Britain, up until that point, you sort of neglect what you might call the, the secondary players in, in these great sort of, uh, sweeps of history. So that, that was particularly interesting. That, that, that's, that's what got me interested. And then really the whole kind of angle on how race influences foreign policy and strategic decision making, that really came from reading John Dower's book as a master's student. Um, his war without mercy it's called um, and his main argument which uh, I suppose I found convincing was that you can't really explain the level of violence in the Pacific campaigns vis-a-vis the European campaigns and he means the American experience in particular mm. um, without taking into account the racial uh, bigotry not just of the United States but also of the Japanese Empire vis-a-vis uh, American troops. Hmm. Um, so um, this was an interesting uh, take on sort of a well-told story, like World War Two. Well, how many books are on that? Hmm. Um, and Dower's argument was, well, actually, if you take these ideas from like cultural history or intellectual history, you actually get a different answer in the military history. Hmm. Um, now, of course, Dower's got some issues. Uh, he ignores kind of the operational differences um, between the two uh, theatres of combat. Mm-hmm. In particular, the I, if you're a young set of marines or a young set of uh, soldiers, you just dropped off on an island, you're not going to be reinforced. Um, there probably is therefore going to be a tendency to fight to the last, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't going to be, uh, there is no retreat essentially, so maybe that actually explains it as well as the racial dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. But the race, the race dynamic definitely... Uh, uh, makes a far more nuanced understanding of that period. So essentially, those were the two kind of inspirations, um, uh, or at least the intellectual inspirations. Uh, there is, as a as a British historian, you in a if you work in a university, you, there is a sort of a there's a constant treadmill of what next, what next. Uh-huh. Um, so it's like this is what's next. Um, and to be even more cynical, I do like going on holidays. So doing research in multiple archives around the world, it's like well, let's go look at New Zealand, let's go look at Australia. Um, who knows? <laughs> Maybe my next book will be on like Hawaii or something like that. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> so, uh, but those are the real serious answers, and those are the sort of more frivolous ones, if you will. Okay. Um, so, how is the book laid out? Do you um, how do you break it down thematically? Yeah, I mean, it's broken down chronologically, essentially. So the first chapter begins with a big overview of World War Two mm-hmm. um, from the perspective of those four states mm-hmm. and. That's really the most difficult chapter, I think, to uh, to to write because it was it was very difficult to condense this enormous literature on this enormous event uh, and try and take sort of generalities out from it. Um, without be- so the the real struggle there was to not become so you didn't want to become obsessed with the detail and the minutiae and forget the general points uh, or the general lessons or the general uh, characteristics of the conflict mm-hmm. um, but on the other hand you, you, you've got to be careful with becoming too broad brush strokes so that chapter was probably the most difficult um, so that's so the first chapter kind of essentially deals with the whole of World War 2 mm-hmm. and then we break it up into sort of I think it's like two year periods over the next ten years over five uh, over the next five chap- 
characters. So, uh, okay. um, yeah, we, we went chronological rather than thematic. Um, uh, it's far easier to go chronologically, right? Uh, no. So, <laughs> um, what, uh, so just for the uh, listeners, what states or nations do you focus on? Okay. Yeah. The, the the main the main states is the it's essentially a study of alliance diplomacy between the United States of America, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand, and how it came to form uh, collective security arrangements between all four powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two main focuses are the ANZUS Agreement, the Australia, New Zealand, and the United States Security Pact, which is created in uh, February of 1951. Mm-hmm. And then the eventual Southeast Asian uh, Treaty uh, Organization, which comes into being, well, it's negotiated at the end of 1954, and it comes into being in 1955. So, um, And that's where our story ends. Um, so really the whole kind of discussion is how do you have these four states cooperating on security, military planning, actually fighting a war, mm-hmm. then how do they then come together to fight what they all perceive as a common threat posed by the communist powers mm. in Asia Pacific. So mm. that's the story. So who, uh, of those nations, which were most concerned about that region? I know they all were, but, you know, who had the strongest uh, worries and, and why? The most, the most concerned is Australia, by far. Um, we can't quite appreciate when you look at a map that New Zealand's quite a bit further away. I think it's about 2,000 miles extra. I think, I think it's about 1,200 miles, like 1,500 miles away from um, Australia. So if you go to the north of Australia, New Zealand's another 2,000 miles away. Mm-hmm. So events which are occurring in what you might call Southeast Asia um, in, and the collapse of the French position there um, and the collapse of the, net, the Dutch position and Britain's continuing problems with what is seen as Malaya, um, modern day Malaysia. Um, so Australia seems to be the most sort of concerned with it. Um, and then in order, it's the United States and then New Zealand and Britain. For Britain, this is a peripheral concern or it's an issue which it doesn't think deserves strategic priority over things which are going on in, say, the Middle East and Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the United States is the only country in this story which, which you can really say has a, um, a global, um, uh, I suppose, I suppose you'd, you'd say it has a global grand strategy, mm. in a sense. Um, Britain has a grand strategy because it still has interests in Asia-Pacific, but those are becoming less and less, and its priorities are clearly diverted further and further towards uh, the Middle East and Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're looking at kind of a pecking order, that's, that, that's where you are. Mm-hmm. You also touch on sort of uh, France's diminishing role in the region and also Japan's rising. Yeah, they, these two, are uh, they come into the narrative as well. Um, so France, its collapsing position, this is seen as a major problem, especially for the United States government mm-hmm. um, and also for Australia, less so for the British. Um, and Japan, yeah, I mean, the, the attitudes towards the eventual Japanese peace treaty, you see that the smaller powers like Australia and New Zealand actually have quite a, uh, a pivotal role in the final makeup of the treaties. And um, you see uh, the, the British in particular are really worried about Japan, um, especially as an economic rival. Um, mm. And Australia and New Zealand's problem with Japan essentially is historical, that if we reindustrialize Japan, could this could there be a repetition of the remilitarized? Uh, it'll then be militarized again, and we could see a, a sort of an aggrandizing foreign policy pursued. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, th- these are th- these two. What th- these are the two big kind of backdrop events, along with uh, the communist success inside of China. I suppose that's the other major kind of a uh, uh, geopolitical. Um, uh, change in the period, um, especially as once China goes communist, in particular, the Americans become very uh, far more interested in Asia Pacific than they were uh, prior to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, um, so actually, that begs the question: for um, a few years after World World War II, China would have been looked at as a possible ally in the region. Mm-hmm. Until no, no, it certainly is an ally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and. Um, so that what is it fifty one that the communists won? I guess that totally flipped the the situation for everyone. 
in a sense. Yeah, I mean, the communists come to power in 49, um, so by the what you would call the fall or what I call the autumn of 48, it appears as if China is about to go communist or the communist revolutionaries are appearing far more successful. Right. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of major battles at this point and um, the nationalist government essentially just collapses mm-hmm. um, and retreats to um, what's then known as Formosa or modern-day Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, so 49 is really the kind of... Um, uh, big sort of hello, the stuff going on over here, which we need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, which is of course interesting because again, if you're interested in that kind of grand strategy, you've then got the United States pushing forward with the creation of NATO, mm-hmm. um, um, trying to, um, you know, it's pushing ahead of its, its strategic nuclear program, things like this. So, uh, um, yeah, the, the Truman administration's faced with multiple kind of, uh, what you might call fires around the world at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, Ch- China, China and China is really the big, the big issue, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. I'm not sure why I said 51. I should have, because that Korean War was already going on then. Yeah, yeah. China's yeah. intervention. Um, how much, so the Soviet Union, I guess, in a sense, a lot of people, I think the the average person wouldn't think about the Soviet Union's um, involvement in Asian wars during the Cold War, but they they were very involved with Korea and Vietnam. Um, I'm just, are you able to address that interplay, that concern about the Soviets' push into into that? Yeah, area? I mean. Where what seems to be the big fear for strategic planners isn't that Moscow suddenly going to launch a land invasion of, say, Southeast Asia. Hmm. What they're really worried about is that they're going to um, encourage coups and continually incite insurrections um, and essentially topple friendly governments to the West um, or Western leaning governments and in their place put in communist uh, governments. Mm. So that that's really the fear with uh, the Soviet Union. And they're also fearful that the Soviet Union perhaps would encourage China to engage in a land invasion. Mm. So um, especially when you see this fear, especially around in Australian circles and American policymaking circles, this idea that, with the French being uh, on the point of collapse with the NBM Fu inside uh, Vietnam in 1954, uh, end of 1953-54, um, that the Americans, uh, people like John Foster Dulles, uh, who's the Secretary of State, people like Admiral Radford, they believe actually maybe the Chinese with Soviet backing here are going to launch an invasion into Indochina. Mm. Um, so... Uh, that's where the real fear of the Soviet Union is. Uh, I, I don't think anyone thinks that the Red Army is going to suddenly just pop up in uh, Sydney or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it's more of a, they're going to encourage insurrection, they're going to encourage uh, political turmoil and perhaps encourage China to um, do the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. Because that's essentially the Korean War. Um, Stalin encourages, well, he, he essentially green lights the North Korean invasion, um, but then he's very smart in a sense because he also uh, uh, makes it clear that, well, by the way, if the Americans get involved, you're on your own here. Um, so he doesn't write out a blank check. And again, once the mm-hmm. Chinese are involved, um, the, the Soviets are providing equipment and material. Uh, I think some modern historians have shown that Soviet pilots were involved in the Korean War, but mm-hmm. flying Chinese aircraft. Um, so all the time, um, Stalin's very reticent. I'd say, I'd say he's actually quite a cautious um, grand strategist in certain respects. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's always very reticent about... Um, being, he, he doesn't essentially want to face mil- American military power head on. He's quite happy for others to do that for him, um, which is perhaps the sensible thing to do. I don't. Know, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not the leader of a great power. So, <laughs> so, how much do um, economic concerns versus sort of security concerns balance when these uh, these four nations discuss the issue? This is one of the interesting things about the role of economic planning and economic thinking. Um, so in terms of 
in terms of the United States, uh, this is less so applicable to the Truman administration, but for the Eisenhower administration, they're extremely concerned that America's essentially going to bankrupt itself um, mm. uh, by fighting too many wars, becoming uh, engaging in too many commitments, providing too many military resources. Uh, essentially, I suppose, Eisenhower's of that opinion, which uh, Frederick the Great has, that whole kind of to defend everything's to defend nothing mentality. Mm. Um, so you do see once Eisenhower comes into office, there's a real, real uh, uh, effort to try and rationalise American defence spending. Mm. Um, now, the other big story which comes out of this is essentially that when security discussions are going on between these uh, between the leaders of these countries and the policy planners and the strategic planners of these countries, very often you see actually they're trying to, in tandem, obtain economic advantage over one another. Um, so it's quite interesting when you look at the Anzos negotiations, for instance. At the end of the negotiations, Australia, New Zealand and American uh, leaders, they're happy that they've reached this security pact but then there's discussions between New Zealand and Australian officials about, well, this is going to be very hard now to defend our uh, imperial preference system, which essentially is a tariff system for countries inside the British Empire, hmm. that the Americans would be able to exploit this security pact to try and bring down the tariffs. Hmm. Um, and the Americans, likewise, there's discussions in the State Department and in the Defence Department. Um, they're also what you might call, for the want of a better word, rather cock-a-hoo that, aha, we can now use this as a means in which to force the British and the Australians and New Zealanders to, um, you know, bring down the tariffs. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, they're quite, the, the pursuit of economic interests and security interests, they, they go hand in hand, really. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's, it's, it's very difficult to say that one triumphs over the other, um, I think when there's immediate crises discussions, when it's over, say, Korea, or if it's over DMBM Foom, whether or not we should militarily go into uh, uh, Indochina, there's no real mention there about, well, how do we pay for this kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. um, uh, or no one's really then saying, well, you know, if we go into Korea, we could then use that to get a better trade agreement with the United States. Um, there's, you don't really find any evidence of that. That usually comes out afterwards, mm -hmm. um, um, which perhaps indicative that it's always there, that policymakers don't just say it because it's just obvious. Um, but then historians, they only then reflect on what's written down a lot of the time. Right. <laughs> uh, and then they say, well, you didn't mention it, so it wasn't important. And But then you say, well, you know, it was mentioned then often after the fact. So mm -hmm. um, maybe mm -hmm. it's just so damn obvious you just don't make reference to it. Um, I'm not sure. So um, how much did the issue of... Um nuclear weapons come into play, you know, who has them and who would use them and how they would be used and all that? Um, the United States is very uh, protective, uh, especially under the Truman administration, about discussing its nuclear targeting, its nuclear planning. Um, uh, it, it certainly never discusses this with the Australian and New Zealand governments. It just it just doesn't come up. Um, now, we know with the literature from the US-UK special relationship materials that um, that the British do have certain access to American nuclear thinking, um, but even then it's still rather limited um, all the way up until uh, the middle of the 1950s. And I suppose 1958 is the high point with the mutual defense agreement being signed where nuclear sharing is actually officially uh, uh allowed um, it's undertaken um um now as for actual like discussions about utilizing nuclear weapons the, the the real example i suppose is the korean war where the british government are particularly panicked that the americans are going to use nuclear weapons hmm. um uh because of macarthur's public rhetoric to this fact um and atlee gets a sort of a uh a semi-promise. Well, he at least gets told he'll be consulted if the Americans do decide to use them. Mm. Um, but in the case of an emergency, I think Truman calls it, um, then, well, 
we, we would have to use them and there'll be no time for consultation. So quite what, uh, quite what Atlee's actually secured by this kind of panicked visit to Washington's difficult to really fathom. Uh, I'd be on the persuasion that he doesn't really get much, um, from them. But yeah, when it, when it just comes to kind of general nuclear discussions, it just doesn't really happen. Um, the, the military planning and the discussions, I would argue a lot of it's very sort of like abstract, very sort of, um, theoretical at some levels that they're, they're essentially debating over where we should be defending and what, and what's the priority of defense. Hmm. Um, it's much later on, probably 53, 54, 55 onwards that they start actually talking about the resources required to defend these uh, areas. Hmm. Um, so, um, for those who are more into kind of the nuts and bolts of military history, mm. um, the beginning of these alliances, there isn't really much of that, um, which is quite interesting. Perhaps it's quite revealing, actually, of what the United States, the, the level of importance they really attach to things like ANZUS. Um, certainly at the beginning, it's sort of a... Uh, this is kind of the argument that comes through, is essentially that for the United States, ANZUS is a necessary security pact in order to obtain leverage with Australia and New Zealand vis-a-vis their agreement with the Japanese peace treaty. Essentially, they want a lenient Japanese peace treaty. Um, and this is kind of the quid pro quo in order to get their support for that. Um, so, um, that, 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 that's, that's kind of where Washington's thinking is at the beginning, um, of this, um, agreement. Yeah, that statement touches on another question I had, which is how did the relative uh, military uh, resources of each nation affect how they discussed or how they negotiated these treaties? Yeah, I mean, I suppose your common intuition would say, well, the more powerful country gets it most of what it wanted. Well, that's just true. And I think that's just one of the realities of international politics, that the strongest power usually gets what it wants. Um, but I think what we reveal also is that actually Australia and New Zealand um, clearly punch above their economic weight um, in terms of what they will contribute to this alliance and in what they do contribute, especially to the Korean War. Um, and that their diplomats actually um, perform very well, actually. Um, so they're actually able to limit what the United States originally wants. Uh, so in the case of ANZUS, the United States wanted the Philippines to be included originally, um, but Australia and New Zealand essentially vetoed that. Um, so America has to enter its own bilateral agreement with uh, the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yes, in terms of resources, it's really going to be the United States and Australia increasingly is is seen as the more uh, important alliance partner in the region. Um, that's essentially because the British have downscaled and are focusing on the Middle East, the Mediterranean, um, Africa, um, and Western Europe. Um, and that's where its attentions and resources are, um, which is, of course, rather interesting, because when the British government's desperate to try and enter into ANZUS post-51, um, uh the Australian and the New Zealand governments ask quite legitimately, well, what are you going to offer us? Like, what is it you're actually willing to commit to the area? Mm-hmm. Um, and the British government essentially just talks in, very, in, in a very vague type of language, essentially, well, we'll, we, we, we'll decide that once we're in ANZUS, that type of argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so, whereas the United States can say, well, we've got enormous naval resources, uh, we occupy all these islands which we're fortifying and placing our air forces on, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, but yeah, if you're looking for who's the driver mm-hmm. or who's going to be the main actor, it's clearly the United States. Um, yeah. Now, as far as the um, sort of the type of wars that would be fought if there was a, a conflict, you know, does the fact that it it might be more naval focused versus more, you know, less, less army. You know, if you're not, if you're more trying to control sea lanes rather than invade land, did those concerns come into play? You know, like, um, you know, again, size of navies versus size of army contribution. And you already touched on it, but maybe if you could. 
And this is where I suppose Australia, New Zealand and Britain are, are useful, right? Because they've actually got uh, fleets um, which can perform those kind of tasks. Um, as for the kind of war that American planners envisage, uh, it's... It, yeah, it's a strange one in a sense because it is like, well, we might have to have a repeat of the Pacific campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're actually thinking more of essentially like a cordon defense around China because Japan's going to be in uh, on, on the Western camp in this in this war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose also with Okinawa being um, uh, fortified and essentially um, as some American strategists refer to Japan and Okinawa as um, essentially these just these are aircraft carriers um, for us to launch strikes into um, China proper. Um, but as for the kind of war they envisage, it's essentially this kind of cordon defence, and it's going to go nuclear very very quickly. Um, Eisenhower especially is of the opinion that if we have a war with China where they launch a major invasion. Um, into, say, Indochina, um, it has to go nuclear because that's the only way we could possibly uh, hold China at bay. Mm. Um, so uh, so this is where there's, there's a bit of a, what you might call a fantastical element to a lot of this planning. Um, it's, for, it's for what I would call sort of, if there's a major war, it's going to go nuclear very, very quickly. Mm. So whether or not you control X, Y, Z, Sea lanes might be seen rather sort of superfluous, I suppose. Um, but if there's a war which does eventually uh, happen, essentially a Vietnam-type war, Malaya emergency-type wars, another kind of Korean war, um, uh, this is where these alliance packs are going to be useful, uh, or at least in theory, right? Uh, eventually proves that they don't actually provide the types of support that the United States would want um, or, or, or desire um, from its um, alliance partner. Um, but of course, that isn't quite true with. Uh, I mean, that, that's certainly true with the CETO alliance. It's not. It's not. It's not true of the ANZUS alliance. Australia and New Zealand both enter uh, the Vietnam War on the pretext of we're upholding the ANZUS arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, so the United States do, um, they do, they certainly get their, um, uh, you know, their dividend, if you will, from that pact, mm-hmm. um, less so from the CETO alliance. I mean, that that's an utter failure, um, really. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I've heard that uh, some planners, American planners, had a concern that Japan would flip communist um, at some point early on. Was that, can you comment on that, and did that affect any kind of planning? Yeah, I mean, this is where you can't explain. Well, within Washington, there's kind of a there's a major divide, which is, seems to be like kind of a consistent norm of American politics, okay, mm-hmm. where um, the Defense Department, the State Department, and the White House is at odds with one another as to how you should uh, deal with Japan post-World War II. Mm-hmm. And with MacArthur essentially running his own personal fiefdom, most planners and policymakers are prepared to kind of just let him carry on for the time being. Now, where the communist angle sort of uh, is important, it encourages actually a belief that if you do not improve the lot of the Japanese people, they will be susceptible to turn towards communism because the communists will provide the kind of social goods uh, that people want and desire. Um, and this is where it encourages the State Department that we need to push ahead with a lenient peace treaty, that ideas which the British, for instance, are pushing that we should uh, be given huge amounts of uh, material compensation. Mm. There's ideas being bounded around that the gold stocks of Japan should just be shipped to the victims of Japanese expansion in World War um, uh, Two. Um, London would want them to come to London, OK? Um, yeah. Uh, so there's, uh, there's, there's, there's all sorts of what, what you might call as tough, um, type peace, uh, proposals. Whereas the Americans have a lenient peace, uh, treaty. Essentially, Japan's gonna be able to industrialize. Japan isn't, uh, gonna have to pay enormous amounts of compensation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where that kind of like communist threat, if you will, really kind of galvanizes opinion and 
once the Korean War breaks out, anyone who's arguing for a tougher Japanese peace treaty, they're essentially pushed to one side because Japan shows its strategic value in the sense that the Americans are able to airlift so much material into uh, Korea very, very quickly. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the, the Defense Department is actually quite interesting. They're the ones who just essentially just let MacArthur run it. Um, and then there's problems with the Defense Department and MacArthur. And then it's essentially, well, we, we'd, we'd quite like a tough peace treaty. Um, as long as we keep our bases, essentially the Defense Department, as long as we keep our bases, we don't really care. Um, whereas the State Department has more of a long-term vision for, uh, Japan. Uh, and that, and that, and that's really Dean Atchison's kind of foresight. Um, um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, Dean Atchison, as a, what you might call a grand strategist, if you will, he's, um, he's definitely, um, he's definitely a clued up, clued up chap, yeah. <laughs> uh, so to speak. Yeah, when you mentioned Britain wanting Japan to pay huge war reparations, it reminds me of World War One when Germany was forced to do the same, and it, see what that yeah. led to. <laughs> I mean, the fit, which is ironic because at the end, because we, with Germany at the end of World War Two, essentially the British are like, well, we've learned our lesson. We've got to reindustrialize it. If we're going to get rich, we need someone to trade with, etc., etc. The big fear for the British with Japan is one, they don't really trade with Japan all that much, so there's no real advantage. Secondly, um, they're really worried that especially after China goes communist, is, well, where's Japan going to find its markets? Because there's an embargo on doing trade with China at America's behest. So they're going to look towards Southeast Asia, where we now dominate, our businesses dominate. Um, and, that, and that's essentially what happens, okay? Over the 50s, 60s, and 70s, British business loses out to Japanese business in, in that period. Um, so, I mean, it's too much of a stretch. They, oh, well, if you'd gone for a tougher peace treaty look british business would be thriving in sort of these areas like no um but you can see that british policymakers at least this is their kind of fear that well japan's going to look down here and we're going to lose out um and this is their argument with the united states all the time it's like well it's all right for you because you're not this isn't an area of importance for your business um but yeah, essentially america was more powerful so it could push its uh, um vision onto um, uh, on onto the British government. Huh? Uh, I'm always fascinated by British military strategy because previous interviews, you know, Britain in 1901, Britain was negotiating with Germany to be an ally. The British trained the Japanese military. They were close together through much of the early 20th century, you know, before the war. So it's it's always interesting to to talk about the British, you know. Um, the things they do to try to protect their own security and economy. Yeah, I mean the the thing with the United Kingdom or Great Britain is it's um it's a huge maritime empire, right? Mm. <laughs> so uh, and one of the keys, I suppose, to any successful empire is to have local actors who are friendly to you to have allies. Mm. Um, and this is where the United States actually probably take that lesson from the British Empire in a sense that we need allies, trustworthy allies, people who can uphold regional stability, regional security, mm. more broadly to uphold our sort of uh, uh, wider interests. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the, the British balancing towards Japan uh, in, at the end of that 19th century, then it enters into a formal uh, security pact. Mm. At one level, that's about trying to bring Japan into kind of a broader security framework, which they both have an interest in sustaining. Mm. It's also about balancing against the Russian Empire, but also the United States. Mm -hmm. And eventually, when the Japanese and the British allow their treaty to uh, fall by the wayside, that's essentially American product. Um, mm. that American prodding essentially says, well, we don't like this pact. Um, we should have a, uh, a tripartite agreement, which eventually manifests into a broader naval agreement between the five powers, okay? Um, in the 1920s. So, um, yeah, like Anglo-Japanese interests actually coincide 
uh, with one another. Right? Mm. And again, that, that's one of the driving factors in British foreign policy or British grand strategy, if you will. It's always about interests. It, um, and they pride themselves on this kind of like cold-hearted, rational <laughs> pursuit of their interests. Um, uh, and that there will be no morality. There'll be no friendships and things like this. Mm. Um, um, now, sometimes some of our political leaders trip themselves up about this. Uh, so... Churchill sometimes get a little bit sentimental about the so-called Anglo-American special relationship. Then, uh, but then most of the time, he's kind of got cold heart pursuit of what he sees are Britain's best international interests. So um, the whole kind of rhetoric or, to use that awful academic word, discourse of <laughs> the special relationship, um, it's utilised by the British as a means to exercise influence or control or power over the United States. Um, uh, I, I don't really think the vast majority of British policymakers are very sentimental. Um, might be in their individual lives, but they're not in their professional lives. I, th- I think that's pretty clear through the documents. So the, the issues you discuss in the book, how much, um, for each of these four nations, how much was the public, the political side, involved in influencing it? Or was it all kind of behind the scenes for the most part. This is an interesting one because one of the things in the book is we we do highlight really that domestic politics or the fear of elected leaders being held accountable for decisions does come into play. Um, And probably the most obvious example comes when there's a debate over whether or not military action should be taken to save France inside um, Indochina mm. at the end of 53-54. So, on the, the United States perspective, the Eisenhower administration just accepts that unless we get international support for military intervention, Congress is never going to sanction this. And mm. with midterm elections looming this year, do, do we want to countenance this? Um, so, you see that acting as what you might call a restraint. You see, in Australia, there's an election in 1954, and this is essentially the reason why their government under Robert Menzies, or at least makes the argument, at least, that there's no way we can enter into military uh, action this year. Uh, we might we, we might be able to next year, but not at the moment. Uh, but you also see that they use their public as an excuse or as a, as a way in which to legitimise uh, why they don't want to do things. Um, so, good example of this is with uh, Japan not being able to enter into the CETO alliance. Um, Australia and New Zealand just argue that in our public uh, sphere, it's Japan is you know persona non grata because of its conduct during World War Two. There's no way we can enter into an official alliance with Japan. It just just we just can't do it politically. But then you actually find behind the scenes that. These uh, the these same uh, uh, foreign uh, affairs officials, defence officials, planners that they're all saying, well, we don't want Japan in because our position in this alliance becomes diluted. Hmm. So it's not really to do with the fact that they don't want Japan in because they they can't sell this to the Australian people. Perhaps they can't. Um, uh, it's that they don't want to for other reasons. So um, yeah, I mean, the public opinion and the domestic sphere works in some strange ways in shaping policies. Um, and it also comes into uh, the diplomacy between the countries. But the vast majority of the material we draw on, or the, mass, the vast majority of strategic planning, it's all under the counter. It's all in private. Um, these things are all slapped with 30, 50 years secrecy rules on them. Uh, so uh, a lot a lot of the stuff around the, the, the defence planning and the intelligence assessments, um, this has only sort of really come out in the last couple of, sort of the last 10 years or so. Um, and rather interestingly, uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, the Truman Library sent me a, a whole host of documents which I had a freedom of information requested in 2015. I, I you know, yeah. completely forgotten about. Um, <laughs> it, was all, it was all these like CIA estimates of um, what would happen if the British retreated from all of these areas. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, all, a lot of this material still even today considered sensitive. Um, because, they, I mean, I, I can see in some respects that you could... Um, orders of battle, things like this, may not actually change all that ma- all that much. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, um, so since we're on this topic, let's talk about the resources you used for the research. Um, what uh, what archives did you and your co-author use? You know, what what sort of things? Yeah. Um, well, on the American side, we went to the main presidential library, so the FDR Library, Truman, Eisenhower, um, the National Archives in I think it's Maryland. Americans call it okay, or as I call it, Maryland. Um, <laughs> National Archives too. Um, so. Those were the main depositories in which we drew on the American side. Um, then we grabbed a whole host of private papers from the various uh, leaders and secretaries of state, defense department, uh, uh, department officials. So the action papers were, uh, were particularly uh, useful, and they were at Yale. Um, that resource was actually... Uh, really really useful because there's a lot of like verbatim transcripts of meetings and telephone conversations mm. um so historians usually look towards the nixon administration for the sort of the, the for the tapes mm. uh it's actually telephone taping going on a lot longer than that was it it, it was an almost tricky dicky mm. um and on the british side the main depository is the national archives which is based in kew which mm. is in west london um and then certain depositories from uh, private papers from certain leaders and officials, so Oxford University and Cambridge University, uh, they had some useful private papers and some, uh, so the Anthony Eden papers, who's the British Prime Minister in the, and the Foreign Secretary in the 1950s, um, his private papers are held in Birmingham, um, so, uh, they were quite useful. And then on the Australian side and New Zealand side, again, it's just the classic, you go to the National Archives in, uh, Canberra, and then you find some of the private papers of the uh, officials, which are based at different universities. So, yeah, I mean, writing international histories, um, uh, it's good, right? Because you get to visit lots of different places. Um, I have some friends in Australia, so I managed to coincide my visit to the, uh, the National Archives there when the cricket was on. So that was excellent. <laughs> uh, the American listeners begin one Earth's cricket. It's a bit like baseball, guys. Don't worry. Um <laughs> So, yeah, international history is um, exciting, exciting stuff. It's, it's quite research intensive, though. Like, it is, there's quite a lot of what you might call, like, moving around. And, um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's definitely uh, useful in that. In that. Oh, it's definitely interesting to do the research, this kind of stuff. So what part of the research was most enjoyable? It sounds like you've touched on it, but was there a particular... Um Thing you well, did. There's, probably, there's probably two things which are the most enjoyable. Going to the Truman Library, which is in a place called Independence in Missouri, mm-hmm. that's an interesting little town. Um, so for people who don't know this, the president's libraries are usually based in the towns which they were born in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you get some really kind of like out there types of places. So Independence is... Um, uh, certainly interesting. Uh, the most enjoyable presidential library is actually the Herbert Hoover one, which is at a place called West Branch, which is near Iowa City. Mm-hmm. Um, and West Branch is about the same size as sort of like a car park or something. Um, <laughs> uh, so that, 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 that's an interesting place to go visit. Um, so I quite like going to some of these off the beaten track places in the United States. Um, because you, you, you're never going to go there as a tourist. I'm, I'm, ne- I'm never going to take my wife to Independence, Missouri, put it that way. Mm. Um, and then Australia I really enjoy because of its uh, wonderful uh, ecosystem and its wildlife. Um, and they play cricket and it's sunny, so can't really complain. <laughs> uh, so those are the two highlights, really, going to Australia and visiting uh, these various out-of-the-way American uh, towns, really. Nice. So what uh, what did you find that was most surprising in your research? Oh, that's an interesting uh, question, actually. Mm, I suppose there's probably two things. The first was just the amount of animosity which the British government holds towards uh, Australia and New Zealand for what they believe, people like Churchill especially believe, is to have gone off with the United States. Um <laughs> There's just like real anger in official British circles that how dare you have joined Anzos without us? This is like abhorrent. Um, this is kind of like tantamount to treason. Um, and they're really aggravated by this. Um, so again, just as like kind of a, 
um, as a scholar who's looked mostly at, say, British and American policy, you, you don't really think about these kind of things, or when you're going through documents, you, you've kind of just overlooked a lot of this mm. um, um, stuff. But when you dig into it, it's like, wow. So that, that level of animosity was quite startling, really. Um, and the Australian-New Zealand argument all the time is, well, in private they argue, uh, and quite, bluntly that well britannia doesn't rule the waves what do you want from us <laughs> and you left us in 1942 and we were left with an expansionist japan and australia its actual mainland is bombed um and ships in sydney harbour are sunk by the japanese and they essentially argue to britain it's like well what are you going to give us like your security guarantee isn't really all that great um so there we have it. And so that was particularly interesting or particularly kind of like, oh, wow, wasn't really expecting that. Um, and the other thing which came as a real kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it was a shock, it's probably a bit too strong, but it's kind of counterintuitive at some level was the, um, the level of influence which Australia and New Zealand were able to uh, exert on their far more powerful allies. So by and large, America and Britain's interests um come through because they're the most powerful that's that's what you'd expect um but you see especially in the kind of the makeup of anzos and then the makeup eventually of sito um just how much kind of influence that australia is able to uh, australia especially is able to exert and quite how cleverly it's uh, it's prime minister robert menzies was able to when he enters negotiations on a bilateral basis with the United States, he's able to pursue his economic interests as well as the security interests. Mm. Um, and he's able to kind of marry them together and to disguise, uh, that what, to disguise the pursuit of economic interests. Um, so he's able to win like new loans and trade agreements with the United States, things like this. Um, mm. and the Americans essentially tick these off. Um, because they think they're getting a security guarantee or a security commitment. So they're willing to kind of pay this price. Um, whereas the Australian government's like, well, we're going to extract our, uh, you know, we're going to get a dividend for this type of commitment. So, um, the Australian and New Zealand government has very astute leaders, um, at least at this period of time. Um, um, very smart individuals. Um, and they, they, I think they punch. I think they punched above their power, mm. essentially. Like if they had sort of like five percent power, they got sort of fifteen percent. Let's go like kind of political science on this, and like, well, let, let's try and get an equation. Um, <laughs> uh, but essentially, that's where you're. Um, that 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 was the the other big kind of oh, wasn't really expecting that type of thing moment. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a question that you found particularly? difficult to um, come to a conclusion on and and maybe you did come to an answer or you still are grappling with well now now that the book's published obviously all answers have been thoroughly uh, uh, fought through Uh, I think the biggest ambiguity which still exists in my mind and I think also the mind of my co-author I'll only speak for myself on this one is the interplay of how racial ideas still influence policy um, and whether or not you can really take some of the utterances of policymakers either at face value or why certain things uh, uh, pop up when they do so for instance uh, it's kind of interesting with the uh, with the Australian government especially they've never mentioned once being concerned with having to uh, broaden the scope of an alliance or limit the scope of an alliance for perceptions of racial justice. They just, they never mention this. They never ever mention this in private. Um, but in 1953, when the doors finally closed to Britain being able to, uh, enter the ANZUS agreement, an Australian, the Australian government argued that, well, you know, if you were to join it, it'd look like a white man's pact and this wouldn't look great and it would be sort of uh, interpretive as as a racist act. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you look at that and prima facie, it's essentially, well, you know, the Australian government sort of seen the light, light they're all for racial equality all of a sudden, are they? Um, and then it's like, well, no, of course not. Like, 
but you, you, you can't kind of prove this. You can only infer it from the documentation that, well, it seems that you're just creating this as a, as a, as a sort of, as a, an, an excuse, as a form of diplomatic camouflage, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially just hide the facts that you don't want the British in because you don't want them diluting the alliance or pushing the alliance in a direction you don't particularly want it to go, things like this. Or perhaps it's reflective of the United States' reluctance to allow it to be expanded, which it essentially was. Um, um, so it's a way in which to essentially cover the fact that you're, I mean, not, not, not being pushed around by the United States, but you're, uh, you're buckling to American wishes. So a way, a way in which to cover that is to use this kind of rhetoric of racial equality. Um, hmm. but it, it, that, that, that's probably the most difficult one is like, how do you actually, uh, prove that, if you will? Um, but again, we're historians. We don't have to prove things, right? We just have to feel them. <laughs> um, and that's okay. So, um, I know this kind of work doesn't really lend itself to having emotional impact necessarily, but did you come across anything that you found that maybe disappointed you about what you discovered or, or on the flip side, really amused you? Oh, the, the most amusing thing, uh, really is how, what I think in 2019 is just how kind of, uh, I can't really think of the, the correct word, but some American states people um, that's, uh, have some rather um, militaristic type ideas. So this caricature you see from sort of Dr. Strangelove of the crazy American general, mm. um, or people like Admiral Radford are interpreted in British, Australian, and New Zealand circles as being utterly bonkers. Mm. Um because they're advocating essentially sort of a first nuclear strike on China, that essentially the war's coming, so we may as well fight it on the most advantageous terms. Um, so around the whole kind of decision or not to uh, lend military support to France over the collapse at the MBM Foo, Radford's kind of pushing for, no, no, forget Indochina, the war's actually China itself, mm. so that's where our focus should be. We should sort of strike now. Um, now, people like Eisenhower are far more sensible, essentially, well, okay, Admiral, calm down type of thing. Um, but Radford then visits London and he, he meets with Australian and uh, uh, New Zealand officials and he, he sort of parrots this line and he just puts the fear of God into these uh, other countries like, wow. Um, um, and John Foster Dulles is another just, I mean, I, I already knew this about Dulles anyway, but uh, the kind of real personal dislike that... Uh, uh, especially British leaders have towards dollars is uh, particularly pronounced. Um, um, I always find that rather amusing reading some of the diary entries from um, especially British leaders. So Churchill and Macmillan especially have some real crackers about uh, dollars. Um, Churchill has such a falling out with dollars that he essentially, uh, that after the first time of meeting him, declares that he's never going to meet him ever again. Um, that, that I'll never speak to that guy. He's just abhorrent. He's awful. Um, they think he's just some kind of like, uh, well, they're, they're not wrong really at some level is that they believe he's some kind of Christian zealot, um, mm. who in his efforts to try and Christianize the world is going to commit a nuclear sort of genocide in, in, in the pro, in, in, in the process. Um, so th- this kind of fear about Dulles and Radford especially is rather amusing. Um, and, uh, some of the, some of the snidey remarks from Australia and New Zealand about Britain are quite, uh, um, they're, they're rather humorous as well. Um, so the British essentially, uh, Churchill and Eden, they get together with some British press barons to essentially try and begin a kind of press attack against the uh, uh, the foreign minister of Australia, a man called Richard Casey. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially try and blacken his name and say like, well, look, uh, um, this this guy, um, he's, he's un-British. And that, that's the phrase they use, like he's un-British. Um, uh, and like he's no longer friendly to the, to the British Empire and things like this. And it's just like, wow, you guys have taken this really tough, haven't you? That you're not allowed into Anzos. Um, uh, cause again, 
if you, if you, if you live now, you look back at this and think, wow, wow, wow. Because uh, you've seen like the course of history, right? You saw Vietnam, hmm. whereas if Britain was in Anzos, you, you'd, you'd be in Vietnam and you'd be like, "Whoa, what a disaster!" Hmm. Um, not being in Anzos was perhaps a lucky escape in certain respects. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe history doesn't work like that. Uh, if you're in Anzos, a whole host of different avenues could be taken. But uh, um, yeah, um, I, suppose, I suppose that's the most interesting. But in terms of disappointment, like that, it's not really our kind of history, really. Um, mm-hmm. um, military planning stuff. Uh. <laughs> so it's interesting that little anecdote you had about, um, you know, British leaders of Churchill and Eden meeting with the press barons to establish sort of a talking point feeds into mm. like, you know, you have current fears of governments working with the press to manipulate public opinion and everything. So that's pretty interesting. And it really mattered, though, because you see then that the ministers in both, the prime ministers in both Australia and in New Zealand, having to field questions in their respective parliaments and actually having to defend the choices they've made. Um, and they use very sort of a uh, diplomatic language, but uh, the argument literally is, once you get through all the kind of uh, flowery rhetoric is, well, Britain's no longer able to provide us with what we need or what we desire. So we have to look towards Washington. Mm. Um, um, so, yeah, and the, you know, the British are aware that they can play on that long cultural heritage, right? Um, mm. um, I mean, when Robert Menzies dies, who's the British, uh, the Australian Prime Minister, um, his, uh, um, you know, his, his coffin's draped in a Union flag. Mm. Uh, he he does talk about the heritage of British peoples in private conversations. He always refers to the British Commonwealth as it's officially known as the Empire. Um, so the, that sense that the, that, that deep cultural connection clearly exists and the British government back in London tries to exploit it for the furtherance of its, uh, um, strategic gate, uh, strategic advantage, strategic, strategic interests, if you will. So apart from filling the historical record, what do you hope this book will do? Well, that's, that's, that's rather grandiose, isn't it? What do I think it's going to do? Fill out the... Well, I, I would be more than happy to take away filling out the historical record, really. Uh, I suppose what I, it would be quite nice for the book to achieve is essentially just to demonstrate to historians the, the, the complexity of how strategic planning or military planning and alliance politics um, it isn't always what you might call rational um it isn't always simply based upon power calculations. Um, things like racial concerns, they do matter. They did matter. Um, probably still do matter. Um, so I suppose that's what you'd like to take away from it more generally. Um, like as, as a methodology, if you will, that, that, that this could, uh, there's elements of this you could definitely borrow from. It doesn't have to be applied to this bit of history. It could be applied to other bits of history. Um, but, yeah, that, that's probably a little bit grandiose, right? Um, filling the historical record, I'll definitely take that. <laughs> so um, did you have any difficulties finishing or publishing the book? The only difficulty we had, really, was having to expand the research remit Um to look more thoroughly at the New Zealand story. So one of the peer reviewers quite rightly said, look, New Zealand's undercooked in this narrative. Um, so that probably set the, the book back by about a year. Hmm. Um, but in terms of actually writing it and then having it edited and put into publication, um, uh, Cornell University Press was sort of the models, really, of uh, professionalism, and of good nature as well. Um, actually very helpful, giving you like very useful advice about this is what you should do or this is what would help you. Um, so that, that's, um, it's actually been quite a, uh, a seamless process once we had, uh, uh, essentially conducted all of the research, um, in that sense. Um, did they approach you or you approached them? Were, were they there? We, we wrote an article together on, a aspect of what then is now the book. Um, so we use that article as kind of a, uh, as a launch pad to, and we contacted, uh, Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Michael McGandy, who's the uh, editor there, um, was receptive. And then it goes through the whole, like, 
peer review process and all of that. Um, then, so that in total took about about four stroke five years in total. So we approached them in 2014, I think. Um, and then the peer review takes like a year. And then you respond to that and then it goes back to the readers and it takes like another kind of nine months after that. Hmm. Um, so after that, we then had about 16, 17 months to actually finish the book in its entirety. Hmm. Um, so it's definitely not like kind of a easy or short, like a short process. Right. Um, definitely takes time. Um, and I suppose it's somewhat stymied because the fact there's two authors that um, you've got to consult and you've got to, like, talk a lot more, whereas if you're on your own, you can kind of plow on, um, you know. That's where um, that's where we are, really, with that. So do you have a current pro- writing project um, you're focused on? Yeah. Uh, well, I am now... I've, I've kind of gone into the middle of the 19th century, actually. So I've, I've kind of left the Cold War behind. Now I've mastered all of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I'm really doing a political economy study of uh, the U.S. Civil War, really, uh, mm. essentially how both sides mobilize, how both sides finance the war, how both sides, or especially the Confederacy, how, how, on earth does it, how on earth does it manage to industrialize so quickly? Mm. Um, what are the processes it's able to put in place? What are the systems it puts in place? And how does it manage to survive so long when large swathes of chunks of its territory are taken from it? Um, so, uh, I mean, I've read about the U.S. Civil War for a long time, and I think this is kind of like a bit of a niche, if you will, that these kind of political economy mm. studies don't really exist. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of it's like battlefield studies, which um, you know, are interesting, but yeah. Um, I mean, how many books do we really need on Gettysburg? I mean, um, right. can we ever really know if there were 27 men on the left flank or 29? It's like fine um okay guys um so that that's where i'm going um and also i'm looking more broadly at what you might call a an international history of sort of american grand strategy foreign policy whatever you want to call it um in that civil war period so from like 1848 to sort of the 18 1877 that's usually seen as kind of the civil war period by historians mm-hmm. um uh so yeah those, those are the projects i'm doing now so bit of a bit a bit of a change if you will yeah sounds like uh, cool projects though obviously i i like the civil war you know with my yeah um so that would be cool to see uh where can people find you on the on the web oh i've got a twitter but i don't actually know what it is because i am <laughs> I, I you know i i'm so so interested in that um <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll probably send you a link to it later so okay. you could like add it in. It'll be at something, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Twitter. Wonderful. Uh, but, but that's how people can follow if they want to follow your thoughts or. Yeah, yeah. If they want to, yeah. My mu- It's usually got. It's usually got pictures of food on there. Um, <laughs> usually like high end French gastronomy. Essentially, okay. like, oh, that's nice. Click. I like that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't do politics on it at all. Like, I have, I have no interest. Uh, not that I don't have any interest in politics. It's that I don't think anyone really needs to know what I feel about this. Mm. Um, uh, my politics is left to, like, the dining room. Um, <laughs> never shall it be made in public. Uh, it's like, I, um, I, I, I'm not that self-important. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, follow me if you're interested in high-end French food. Um, I occasionally, like, um, put documents on there, things like that which I'm going through. Oh, this is quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's, I'm sure it'll be a captivating read. Uh, uh, yeah, but if anyone ever has any questions, uh, probably best just dropping me an email. That's that's probably the best one. Okay, I'll post whatever links uh, you want to provide to me. Um, any? Uh, that's all the questions I have. you have any final thoughts or words? Uh, no, just thank you for, like, uh, uh, bringing... Oh, I suppose I do have a final five, so it's that uh, when you get asked questions about what you've written, it actually makes you think, oh, hang on, uh, what, what, what was it I wrote, actually? Uh, um, it actually makes you... Uh, it's actually a very useful process, actually. Mm. Um, 
and helping you straighten out your ideas and things like that. Um, but that's why the university seminar is so useful. Um, even if you're talking to what you call like non-specialists, just being able to articulate your ideas and thoughts, uh, um, that's a useful process for, for writing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that's, that's my only thought. Um, pretty deep and profound, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, so no, thank you very much for inviting me on. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez warscholar, and on Twitter at warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. Thank you.